From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find a Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We are broadcasting live from the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Summit at the Grand Hyatt in New York City. And one of the big questions here, Paul, is how do you develop an infrastructure to allow electric vehicles to really gain uh, a popularity that would change the fossil fuel Absolutely. emissions yep. uh, of the United States? Joining us to discuss that is Pasquale Romano. He is president and chief executive officer of ChargePoint, normally based in Campbell, uh, Campbell California, but he decided to come here even though it is not the weather of Campbell, California. Uh, Pasquale, so let's talk about this, your business. How exactly is it establishing some sort of framework, network, charging stations for those electric vehicles? Um, the, key, the key is cars charge where they're parked most of the time. It's a, a car is about a 4% utilized asset. So 96% of the time, it's kind of like your cat. It just sleeps all day. And where it sleeps is at home while you're sleeping or at work. Uh, and a little bit of retail and around town. So the problem seems daunting if you have to populate all those parking lots that you see when you're driving around. Uh, but if you view it, if you create a business model like we have that lets each business engage with EV charging and pay for their portion of it or each property manager, it's actually a completely tractable problem. So that's how, how we've done it is essentially using businesses to crowdfund a very large network of EV charging and we introduce models to make it really simple. So, Pasquale, just get, let us step back a little bit. Where are we in this country in terms of adoption of electric vehicles? I see more and more of them out there. I see more and more charging stations. Actually, Bloomberg down at Princeton has a Bloomberg ch uh, charging station. Uh, just generally kind of where are we and where do you think we are relative to that tipping point to really encourage mass adoption? Yeah, so the way we look at it is, it, uh, it, you know, if you talk to consumers that own an electric vehicle, they'll never go back to a gas car. The problem is there aren't enough makes and models to fit all the lifestyle choices and, and affordability uh, requirements of most, of most consumers. Half the U.S. market is trucks and SUVs. Uh, so until there's enough choice in trucks and SUVs, you have a limited penetration. With all that said, um, it's going about as fast as it can go given how fast cars turn over. Uh, so we're super encouraged. You know, you had, you know, 350-ish uh, thousand cars uh, sold last year in the U.S. that, that uh, had a plug. You have more coming this year. And uh, this and next year is a literally a model year extravaganza for most of the OEMs that have really dove in. How does the cost of filling up a car with electricity uh, compare with filling up a car with gas? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. Um, if you fill up a car, if you um, charge your car off-peak or you use commercial rates at work, uh, mo I, by the way, most employers give the power away. It's about the cost of coffee. 
to give uh, someone <laughs> okay. uh, Although power. We have good coffee at Bloomberg. We so. do have good coffee, so that coffee probably is a little more expensive. But I, I do have to wonder, though, uh, even if somebody is bearing that cost. So if the, yeah. uh, if the company is bearing that cost, then that means that they're going to be less inclined to build out this network if the cost is, uh, is, more, is prohibitively expensive. Yeah, it's actually not compared to other things. So first of all, let's talk about how much it actually costs. It's about 400 three to five hundred bucks a year depending on the utility rate that you're charging the car on to basically uh fuel it to the average drive miles a year about 13 per car per car okay yeah now let's look at what corporations currently spend they spend about three thousand dollars subsidizing cafeterias they spend about two per employee they spend about two thousand per employee on health and wellness gyms things like that so when you eat that sandwich or go to that yoga class at work your employer is really subsidizing your, uh, you know, your benefit there. Um, they spend about three to four hundred dollars a year on coffee per employee, and it's that or less to give people both the infrastructure on our subscription services for infrastructure. They can fund that plus the energy. So it's not that much more money than coffee. They view it as pretty insignificant. So how many clients or customers do you have with your charging stations and, I, and what's kind of the growth you guys are seeing? Uh, it's about about 8,000 wow. uh, clients and customers all over the United States and Canada now in Europe where we, we entered Europe about a year and a half, two years ago. Um, so it's growing very, very, very quickly. To give you a stat that's interesting because I think it's a leading indicator, 50% of the uh, Fortune 100 uh, are on ChargePoint and Obviously, we don't have a 100% market mm -hmm. share. So that shows you what the large employers are setting as trends for the future. So I'm just wondering, uh, I noticed that Chevron had invested in your company. Are there other oil companies, big oil, uh, that's investing in, in this company, or is it exclusive to Chevron? It's not. A, uh, our investor set's not. There's no exclusivity in our investor set. We have two OEMs, uh, BMW and Daimler. We have two large utility groups in Constellation and, and uh, AEP. Um, and, and we have now Chevron, uh, and there's no exclusivity. And if you see what Shell has been doing uh, in our market, not, not uh, investing in us, but investing in acquiring companies in the space and also BP, there's a lot of motion with oil and gas. So, well, who are your big competitors? Um, it depends on the vertical. So it's hard to answer that question because, we're, because we've been around so long. We're an 11-year-old company, raised a little over half a billion over that 11 years. We're the only company, regardless of size, that's in every single vertical in two continents, right? So we're in home, multifamily, workplace, um, uh, metro area fast, highway fast, fleet, all those different verticals. There's no other company that's doing all that. But in any given vertical, you'll see... The uh, an Anel acquisition of eMotor works in the home business, for example, so they're there. Um, you'll see uh, with uh, Shell, the acquisition of Green Lots, you'll see, uh, and, and a few other things, you'll see them in Leaseco in Europe, you'll see them in a few areas in the United States. So depending on the vertical, you know, we got plenty of competitors. <laughs> very good. <laughs> Pasquale Romano, thank you very much. Pasquale is a president and chief executive officer of ChargePoint based in Campbell, California. But joining us here in New York at the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Summit at the Grand Hyatt in uh, in New York City, electric vehicles. Obviously, you know people are just wondering where and when is the tipping point uh, for mass uh, adoption. And I think it's probably going to come from Detroit when we get the, you know a lot more choice. So maybe pay attention to the New York Auto Show coming up in April.
Well, energy policymakers in Washington are frantically trying to keep up with changes in consumer behavior as well as new technologies in the energy space. To help us kind of dig through some of those issues, we welcome Saren, uh, Sarah Ladislaw, Director and Senior Fellow, Energy and National Security Program for the Center for Strategic and International Studies based in D.C., but Sarah's joining us here in New York at the Bloomberg New Energy Finance uh, Symposium. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you know, we read a lot about in the press uh, from maybe some of the new presidential candidates for 2020 about a Green New Deal. Uh, lots of different flavors out there. Uh, what is your sense of what it, some of the core components of a Green New Deal might incorporate? Yeah, so the Green New Deal is a big idea. Uh, it's really important that everybody realize there's not a plan. Right. So it's <laughs> just it's just a proposal. It's a big idea. And fundamentally, it's about tying together the issue of decarbonizing the economy for the purposes of managing climate change and um, doing something about inequality and in income and uh, those types of economic insecurity issues. There's not like a prescribed policy behind that, but on the green side of the equation, it's broadly about trying to find a way to reduce emissions in the electric power sector to reduce emissions from the transportation sector, um, and to do a lot of things to refurbish the kind of infrastructure we have to make it a lot more energy efficient. Are there policy uh, creators, drafters, in President Trump's administration right now that are working on proposals that could move the United States closer to uh, reducing uh, emissions substantially? Yeah, so I think the important thing is, uh, you know, transitioning from the Green New Deal concept, which is really a debate happening in Congress, to the executive branch, which is where the Trump administration is doing a lot of their like policy formulations. What's happening actually now, right? Yeah. <laughs> and what <laughs> are they working on? So a lot of what they're focusing on is really um, trying to, to do two things. One, deregulate the U.S. Uh, energy sector, which they've made a lot of progress on. So remove the regulation that they see in him impinging on the production of energy writ large across the board, and then also try to sell things like oil and natural gas and coal to other countries around the world, right? They realize we have a huge amount of energy resources, uh, and they're, so they're trying to sort of develop those things. Those are not necessarily uh, commensurate with trying to reduce emissions. Uh, so the, on the natural gas side, to the extent that we're using natural gas in the, in the U.S. as opposed to coal, that's one of the things that they tend to focus on when they talk about the success that the U.S. has had in terms of emissions reductions. Critics of the administration would say, you know, a lot of the regulatory efforts, whether it's through the Clean Power Plan or through the efficiency measures that they're trying to roll back, are actually working against emissions reduction. So it's kind of it, uh, certainly a mixed record in that regard. Well, certainly I'm seeing, you know, as you, as you drive around, you see more and more wind farms, you see more and more solar panels on just individuals' homes as well as businesses. You see big farms of solar panels. Is, is that being driven by just the market or is there actually policy behind it driving it and supporting it? Yeah, I think the really good news stories you look across the United States, there are policies that have driven renewable energy into the market, um, but increasingly that's aided just by the performance of those assets, right? So things like wind, things like rooftop solar um, are very cost competitive, utility scale solar, cost competitive in a lot of different places. What you're seeing right now is state level policies that are looking out and saying, hey, we've actually been able to increase renewable penetration into our electric power sector. We think it's been a good thing. It's created jobs, it's reduced emissions. There's an industry here for this kind of stuff now. And they're doubling down on some of those policies. Um, particular ones. When you talk about deregulation, we focus a lot on oil uh, drilling in the United States. We focus less on our relationship with nuclear power and some of these issues that might affect national security in a way that people might be uh, not but me as aware of. Where are we with that and how much has deregulation kind of changed the game there? 
So I think in the on the nuclear power side of the equation, the administration is focusing on national security implications of not having a nuclear sector. And so you just saw Secretary Perry go down to Georgia and to, to um, uh, announce additional loan guarantees for the sort of ailing nuclear plants that are uh, that are being built there. And I think that's one of the reasons why you've seen both the administration and the Hill sort of talking about how do we support nuclear power so that it has a future in the United States. Rel it's relatively cost constrained. Uh, we don't have a lot of projects that have come online that have been under cost or on time. They've all been over cost and over time. Um, and then you're seeing a lot of state level policy that's trying to advantage even existing nuclear plants that can't compete in the markets. And so I think what's happening is, is, is there's a, a more active dialogue, certainly um, one that this administration is engaging in on whether or not having a vibrant nuclear industry yields national security benefits for the United States. What about exporting the nuclear energy uh, technology to other countries? Yeah, that's a much more controversial topic. I think in the past, you know, whether or not we export nuclear power technologies to other countries really depends on the recipient country and the, the level of uh, commitment that we have from them that it's going to be safe, that it won't have proliferation risk, all of those sorts of things. I think the U.S. is really concerned because the U.S. Uh, is not as competitive internationally as it is anymore, especially relative to people like uh, countries like China and Russia that are offering entirely different kinds of deals for these other countries. And so um, the U.S. has really high standards for what it's going to export to other countries. And so it's a, it's a fairly controversial issue as to how to get more competitive in that field. Sarah Ladislaw, we could spend the next hour yes. speaking with you. Sarah Ladislaw, <laughs> thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Director and Senior Fellow uh, for the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS, the Center for Strategic and International Studies, uh, based in Washington, D.C., but joining us here live from the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Summit in New York City. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. Well, we are here live at the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Summit at the Grand Hyatt Hotel in New York City. And one of the key issues being debated here is security. A security of the energy grid, security of the U.S. infrastructure. And to help us kind of dig down on some of these issues, we welcome Edgar Captiviel. He is CEO of Nozomi Networks, Inc., based in San Francisco. But Edgar joins us here in New York. And I must note that this morning, Nozomi Networks, was named a 2019 New Energy Pioneer by Bloomberg New Energy Finance. So congratulations, Edgar. Thank you very much. I'm glad so to be here. So talk to us a little bit about, I guess, the security, in industrial security. As we think about more and more of industry being automated, that raises the risk for cybersecurity issues. What is your sense of the lay of the land right now? Um, Paul, that is absolutely correct. I think uh, automation is increasing in a dramatic pace. Uh, traditional industrial control networks are converging to 
be more like IT networks, and that means more exposed, more vulnerable to, to again, exposure and attack. And um, there are several verticals in what we would call critical infrastructure that are affected by this. Not only oil and gas, electric power, uh, all flavors of power, manufacturing, transportation, chemicals, pharmaceuticals, all these verticals rely heavily, uh, critically, on their industrial control networks for revenue and production. And again, as we converge and those networks get more exposed, we try to get more data out of those networks. Um, folks are more vulnerable to attack. So, Edgar, what actually do you do to prevent these attacks? Absolutely, we have an appliance that connects to these industrial control networks. And first, the first thing we do is, you know, you can't protect what you can't see. So the first thing you want to do is provide a layer of visibility in industrial control networks, which traditionally have been um, under-instrumented from a, a bunch of legacy reasons. They were, they were um, a little bit backwards when it comes to, to technology advancement. There's been, um, there's been a belief that they're isolated. But with this convergence, exposure and modernization is accelerating. And again, people want to get more out of those networks from a data analytics point of view. And therefore, they're connecting them. And that makes them, makes them uh, more exposed. So after we provide that initial layer of um, visibility, we learn about the process behavior being operated in that network. And we provide anomaly detection, vulnerability management, all the cybersecurity infrastructure that allows you to monitor and protect industrial control networks as if they were IT networks. So how about we've seen in the past very high profile news stories about financial institutions being hacked and so on and so forth. How would you characterize the United States industrial plant in terms of cyber security? Cyber security in general is not too different from the United States than, than other places. I think the reason you have not seen you know, something like an industrial 9-11 or, or an, a major attack is that uh, attacks or, or these these events have to align, you know, vulnerabilities with intent and 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 an author who who is going to do this. So, uh, when you look at industries in other regions like the Middle East, etc., for them, industrial cybersecurity attacks are are not a theoretical scenario. It, it happens in a fairly significant way. Very few of those get get to the press. In the U.S., that alignment hasn't happened of of intent. Uh, combined with the vulnerability aspect, not to a great extent. We have a lot of reconnaissance activity happening from different sources, and, and that's been public information. But we, we really haven't had a major attack in the U.S. As, as that, that has been publicly, um, that has been publicized. Right. That has been publicized, perhaps <laughs> being the key. Yes. That's what I'm wondering. What have we not heard about uh, that has happened, or at least that has been blocked? I'm wondering how big of an investment are energy companies making in cybersecurity right now? It varies by industry. Um, some of the uh, industries that are more regulated or have tighter budgets obviously make, make less of an investment. We've seen a tremendous amount of investment from an oil and gas perspective, even though those, those companies don't, are not necessarily the fast movers. Electric uh, companies from downstream to upstream to downstream have also made significant investments both in the U.S. and globally. Chemical plants, mining plants, everybody who needs to ensure the reliability of their production. If you, as you talk to your clients, um, what, what areas of their in, in industrial operations do they feel is most exposed? Is there a common th threat or a common uh, uh, exposure area? It really depends, again, by, by vertical. Um, in manufacturing or mining, it's, it's primarily uh, you know, kind of one business. Yep. Yeah. In, in oil and gas and electric, you have upstream, downstream, retail. 
we don't really um, get too much into the detail because in retail side because yep. those are more like IT networks. Yeah. So I'm just wondering, how does this fit into new energy? Uh, wind and solar. Yeah, absolutely. We call that distributed generation, like everybody else. <laughs> Um, and distributed generation has its own characteristics, but but is absolutely um, part of part of the game. So so you know there's industrial controls in a wind turbine. In well, a I was just wondering because you won this this new energy pioneer award for this year. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm just uh, thinking that this security is something that goes throughout every aspect of energy. Absolutely. And I'm just wondering, you know, is there something unique about sort of the new energy complex when it comes to security? Um, New energy is, is great. Uh, from the perspective of industrial cybersecurity and exposure, it's not too different, other than maybe the cost structure has to be different for those remote distributed sites. Yeah. But other than the cost structure required to, to serve those, uh, from our perspective, which is uh, to provide visibility and protection, it's, it's very, very similar. Edgard Captaviel, thank you so much for being with us. Edgard Captaviel is Chief Executive Officer of Nozomi Networks, which is based in San Francisco, but he joins us here in New York for the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Conference. Well, Bloomberg News is reporting this morning that Theresa May is inclined to put her Brexit deal to a third vote in Parliament on Tuesday, according to people familiar with the matter. Likewise, the EU is also saying that it is now prepared to handle the impact of the UK leaving without an agreement, a scenario it describes as, quote, increasingly likely. So a lot of pieces are moving in the Brexit debate to get the latest. Uh, we welcome John Authors. John is a senior editor for Bloomberg Markets. He joins us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Uh, John, thanks so much for joining us. A lot of moving pieces, as I said. What is the latest coming out of Parliament? Well, we've uh, heard from Theresa May uh, in the last few minutes. Uh, she hasn't said that she's not holding uh, a third meaningful vote, to use the phrase we've all got used to, um, but she... Uh, has said, uh, I'm sure correctly, that she doesn't yet have enough support to win one. Uh, now, what is intriguing is obviously we've also had uh, all this glorious uh, back scenes, uh, backstage political manoeuvring going on uh, all weekend. Plainly, uh, a lot of the most Eurosceptic, most pro-Brexit MPs uh, who've been talking to have suggested that uh, they might be prepared to accept her deal as it stands yeah. in exchange for a copper-bottomed promise from her to quit. Um, so, which, which is a difficult situation for her to be in, to put it mildly. Sorry, Lisa. No, 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 no worries at all, John. I, does anyone have like a chance of hard Brexit-o-meter? I mean, I feel like that's sort of what we're all trying to get at. It's like, are we incrementally closer or further away from a hard Brexit that leads to, you know, catastrophe? V various people have <laughs> attempts at hard Brexit meters, uh, some of which have got as high as 50%. I mean, you, 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 can, you can try to, and unfortunately, I didn't bother to check any of them before I came to the studio. So I, I, the, uh, the last I saw... Um, you had had them spike as high as 50% uh, 
uh, at one point. Most of most versions of where, where you get from the betting odds and so on are distinctly lower than that. Yeah, well, I guess um, that, I guess that the question that also is to today move us closer toward the higher than fifty percent or lower than fifty percent. <laughs> uh, I think we are probably probably moving towards lower than 50%, but I wouldn't want to swear to it. I suspect um, that Theresa May um, may have got to the point where um, her unpopularity almost begins to work in her favour. There's a lot of ardent Brexiteers who are beginning to think, well, let's just take this rather than mess around or take the risk of leaving without a deal. We'll just take this rotten, awful deal as long as she goes straight away afterwards and then somebody with a bit more you know, British bulldog spirit or whatever <laughs> way they want to look at it can, can take over the negotiations from there. So, um, sorry, so John, yes. is, is there sense... What's the status of a second referendum? I, I haven't heard that spoken too much in the last 24 uh, hours. I, I think there's a good reason why you haven't heard it uh, spoken very much. It's still very difficult to see how we get to a second referendum given that the leaders of both parties uh, are very nervous to uh, actively propose such a thing uh, and that that we still have a situation where the... Well, there are two key points. One is that um, you have a critical block of very energised Brexiteers within the Conservative Party and the balance-holding Democratic Unionist Party from Northern Ireland are plainly not up for a second referendum. Yeah. And you also have a large number of Labour MPs. Labour as a party is largely much more pro-European these days than the Conservatives are. But a lot of Labour MPs are in working-class neighbourhoods where there were huge majorities for leaving and are very, very mindful of that and yeah. don't want to go to the go back to their local electorates having, uh, having sanctioned a second referendum. I, I suspect... Yes, it's... it's being here in the zeitgeist in London, it, it, it almost isn't being mentioned at the moment because it's very difficult to get there and so contentious to yeah. get there. All right, so you can take off your Brexit hat now. We're done uh-huh. uh, with that segment <laughs> of this. Happy. I'm happy yes, you're, you're happy to take off your Brexit hat and yes. put on your wither go- uh, global markets and yes. <laughs> uh, bond yields uh, hat, yes. uh, which is, of course, the mm. big conundrum right now. The fact yes. that we're seeing the uh, pool of negative yielding debt surge beyond $10 uh, trillion the most in September 2017. Big yes. question here Will this backdrop? drop push investors back toward risky assets or is this just flashing uh, a don't go there sign i tend i tend to be somewhat bearish about this and tend towards the latter i would say that the single most important uh, indicator we need to look to, to tell which though that is what the answer is is earnings earnings per share generally speaking stock earnings do badly when bond yields are falling even though a falling bond yield can plainly help some stocks or other things equal earnings tend to do badly they also tend to do badly when we are in a state of yield curve inversion and you have actually seen a very sharp fall in earnings expectations so far this year that the market the stock market has totally ignored i think that's where the the critical point lies if there was still real earning power, earning capacity in the corporate sector, then you probably could see through 
what's happening in bonds. You could take advantage of the uh, of the fact that money is cheap. But as it stands, I think we need more to think of the bond market as giving us a message. Right. Uh, it's as good an aggregator as any of uh, of uh, prospects for the uh, for the economy, uh, gotcha. uh, as you know very well yourself. And I think it probably uh, suggests that, uh, that that we should be bearish about corporate earnings and therefore probably that we should be bearish about risky assets. Hey, John, I hear from uh, somebody in my ear that mm. uh, you are uh, starting a new book club for <laughs> Bloomberg. Tell us about that. Yes. yes. Uh, imaginatively called Author's Notes. Can't resist a pun on my surname sometimes. <laughs> Got it. So the idea is Oprah style. Uh, this, is, this is a big attempt to, by Bloomberg. We, we recognize that a lot of our very busy readers wish they uh, wish they read far more and this is like any other book club an attempt to try to use a bit of peer pressure to actually uh, to actually get people to, to read the number of people who do really start the year honestly wanting to read a book a month yeah. is quite serious so the idea is that uh, Bloomberg is uh, designating me initially to, to try to be the uh, the Bloomberg business book answer to Oprah and nominate a book every. <laughs> All right. I don't. And there's not many other ways I'm much like Oprah. So John, John uh, authors, hold anyway. on a second. You are uh, the Oprah of Bloomberg. That is what we're going to introduce you as from here on out. John Thank authors, you. the Oprah of Bloomberg, also known as the senior editor for Bloomberg Markets, joining us from our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. We have been broadcasting live from the Bloomberg New Energy Finance Summit. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.